the ideas, the leaders, the lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, with your co-hosts, Ed Lay and Thomas Molhern, this is Global Denmark. Hello and welcome to the Global Denmark podcast, where we explore how thought leaders and innovators are working to create a better Denmark and a better world. We had the pleasure of sitting down with Rufus Gifford, the former financial director for President Obama's re-election campaign and former United States ambassador to Denmark, serving from 2013 to 2017. In this wide-ranging conversation, we explore a variety of subjects, including what it truly means to be an ambassador, the current political climate, why Rufus decided to go into politics, and life on Air Force One. Without further ado, we bring you Rufus Gifford. I am your co-host, Thomas Mulhern, and sitting beside me are two fine gentlemen. I have with me my co-host, Ed Lay. Ed, how you doing? Yep, excited to get going. Um, excited to hear from our guest. That's right. We are joined today by one Rufus Gifford. Rufus, how are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. Uh, beautiful morning in Copenhagen. I'm thrilled to be, I guess, the inaugural guest of your podcast. So thank you so much for having me. That's right. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. I think we're just going to get right into it then. Great. Rufus, I, I was a little bit in doubt whether I should call you Rufus or mm-hmm. Mr. Ambassador. Well, I think that, you know, uh, Danes, regardless of the title, Danes have always called me Rufus. It's what, uh, it's what I've been known as from, uh, uh, from the beginning of my time here. And, and I actually love it. It's, it's something that it's the way I kind of wanted to do the job, uh, which was take a title that is exceptionally kind of fancy and full of, uh, and, and full of pomp and circumstance and actually try to bring it, bring it down without diminishing the title at all, kind of bringing it down. And it's kind of the way Danish culture works, right? Yeah. Uh, you call doctors and teachers by their first names in Denmark in a way that we certainly do not do in the United States. And so it made sense for me to go by my first name. So some people will still call me uh, Mr. Ambassador, but uh, I always have preferred Rufus. Fair enough. Well, <laughs> well although uh, I won't refer to you as Mr. Ambassador, I want to know what your thoughts are on what it means to be an ambassador. You know, it's one of those questions that I think I really struggled with before I arrived. And the first, uh, President Obama, when I saw him uh, just shortly before I left to come here in 2013, we were backstage at an event in Dallas. And I just asked for any sort of last minute advice. And again, you know, at the time I was a 38 year old political staffer with no diplomatic experience. And he said, "Uh, go be you go talk about the country you love. And I loved that advice. And I think it really spoke volumes about how I think you should do this job. Because whether or not you have the title, because the title matters. And so there's the official part of that title, which is ensuring that you keep the government to government relationship as strong as possible. Now, to be honest with you, that usually is not particularly challenging as it relates to the American-Danish relationship. For decades, it's proceeded with great, um, the partnership has been fantastic. So where I look at the title, ambassador, it's actually much broader than that. It's this idea that we need to try to create bonds, increase our bonds as people. I often said that any American who is traveling to Denmark, whether you live here or are a tourist here, that you're ambassadors as well. You don't have the title, but you're ambassadors as well. This is about sharing culture. This is about uh, talking about who you are and where you come from. And in addition to that, embracing 
and exploring cultures that are not yours as a way to make your own culture richer. And that's the way I tried to operate as an ambassador uh, and the way I continued. And, and I think as days and weeks and months and years went on, I actually even doubled down on that, that approach, that the government-to-government piece, while critically important to the actual functioning of the job, is in a country like Denmark, the other part is just as important, the human piece, being a sort of human ambassador in some ways. I think that's a beautiful way of looking at ambassadorship in general. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess we're all trying to be ambassadors in, in a way. I, I had an absolutely fantastic time reading up about you and each time I felt like I'd followed a theme of where you'd gone to where you were going I was like there's a there's a story in between this gap here and you're obviously very personable is there a lot of you that goes into creating this ambassador role and building of relationships and 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 where did where did that come from you know I I it's I think there probably is, and it goes back to what I said earlier about and, – and I, I don't think that's the typical way to do the job. Um, but w- the, going back to what the president told me before I arrived, go be you. And it, the, that process for me is sort of – so my job was to represent 320 million Americans, which is impossible to do, right, with the diversity, the diversity of race, religion, political opinion, all of that. So my goal was to just try to tell one American story, which was my American story, as a way to talk about the country as a whole. And you do put yourself out there in a way that is a little terrifying. I like to say that I walk into every room, and whether this is a meeting with the with the prime minister or a farmer in Jutland, and the first thing I'll do is just like put my heart on the table. It's just say this is what I'm about, and this is this is what uh, and and to try to constantly break through formality because when you walk into any of these rooms with the title of ambassador. The formality is the thing that starts any conversation. And so I try to break through that formality because I think the only way you can get stuff done in this world is to actually connect as human beings. And so to me, that was being Rufus before I was the ambassador in most instances. And I think for the most part, that really served me um, and served the mission here. I, I do. It, it does make you more vulnerable, I think, to uh, to criticism and attack in the sense that when someone criticizes the role they're criticizing you personally in some ways and that 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 is a little tough to take but i think you know at a time where making yourself vulnerable uh, tearing down walls revealing being sort of connecting with uh, connecting with people's emotions it's, that's what we need more of in this world frankly because that's connected to authenticity and sincerity and all those things that i think we miss sometimes in, uh, Absolutely. in this world yeah how did you prepare for coming to Denmark? <laughs> what, what was your knowledge of the Danish people, and how has that evolved over time? Yeah, I I love talking about this because I think Americans, and maybe all foreigners, I don't know, have a very stereotypical definition of what it means to be Danish. I think, on the one hand, it's kind of old-fashioned. On the one hand, we have sort of Vikings and Legos and Hans Christian Andersen, right? I think a lot of Americans, might that might come to mind. And then there's the kind of modern Danish which is renewable energy, progressivism, social justice issues, economic economic equality. Certainly things like the happiest country in the world have come into mind <laughs> lately. I, concepts like Huga are now 
everywhere it seems in the U.S. So it's, it's, it's also it's, over in the states. It is. It yeah. is. It's fascinating. I, I in, a, in a, no one understands how to pronounce that word, but it's uh, <laughs> which is hilarious. But so my point in in saying this is that I had a very kind of what I describe as a stereotypical definition of what it mean, meant to be Danish, and so and I spent a lot of time in preparation. So you spend. So I knew found out I was getting the job on November thirtieth of twenty twelve, and I arrived on August thirtieth of twenty thirteen. That mean that's actually lightning speed through the process too. And you spend months and months at the White House and the State Department and the Pentagon and all the various agencies that do work here and um, trying to get a sense of what makes the what makes Denmark Denmark all about the partnership and the military partnership the economic partnership the cultural partnerships all of those things but that's very kind of technical and and as you probably already get a sense I'm technical the technical part isn't as interesting to me as the human part so uh, when I got here I felt like the way to do this job most effectively was really it really immerse myself in the culture so that meant I think far too often ambassadors kind of sit especially the American ambassador sit in their ivory towers and which in by our estimation is this gorgeous home that I used to live in in Charlotte Lund north of Copenhagen and everyone sort of comes to you and you sort of you you entertain and you talk about you know that's so it's and that's fine and I actually I did a lot of that I loved hosting parties at my residence but it's not as it's not as rewarding in some ways because you don't get a sense of Denmark and what makes Denmark special unless you go to the Eulafrokus and their Eulafrokus, not something that you try to create. And you do go and you, and you start to understand the traditions. You start to understand Yantelaw. You start to understand Hygge. You know, these concepts that are uniquely Danish or Scandinavian, at least. And then you get to understand this whole con this society, which is very special in a lot of ways. What created a social democracy and this real belief that this tr level of trust that exists between citizens and government. And that was something I r learned to really appreciate. Yeah, um, that's a big one. It is. And it's, and it's some, especially as an American, where trust is completely broken down between people and institutions, people and government. And, and we got to build that back up. From the people I talk to, you in very, uh, very authentic way have entered into that circle of trust which is very difficult to do as an expatriate or anyone coming to Denmark from the outside. Yeah. Um, I, could, I could hear that you put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. You came out of your comfort zone. Do you feel that that is crucial to being taken into that Danish circle of trust? Definitely. I, I do. I think that, and it's, it's advice. So I, I was told before I arrived, by the way, that by Americans, that you're going to have a very hard time with Danes, that they're going to feel very <laughs> cold. No one's going to look at you on the street. No one's going to say hello in the elevator or whatever. I I found I really did feel the opposite. Now, partially is because I'm where I'm from. I'm from Boston, which is kind of nor I don't know if it's the cold climate or whatever it is, but we're not nearly as sort of openly friendly as what you might find in the Midwest or the South or something like that. But I found it to be quite easy actually breaking in with the Danes. And that is because of that, I think. It's because I was obsessed with this idea of before inviting everyone to my house to eat hamburgers, which I did sometimes, I wanted to go and I, I just wanted to jump in headfirst into Danish traditions. And so, and I love it. And, and I ended up loving it. And that was everything from kayaking to drinking snaps and everything in between, yeah. right? And I think just slowly you make friends and it's it's about, so it's, it's about asking questions, I think, more than anything. And I, for often, I think Americans talk a lot and don't do very much listening um, and listen and observing. Yeah. And I, 
I tried to do a lot more listening and observing, especially for the first six months that I was here. I've been here for a little over a year now, and much like it sounds like you received when you arrived here, I've been able to speak to a lot of people since I've got here, but within the first five minutes I'm being told by by Danes and by by uh, British people and by Americans, the Danes are. And, uh, and each time mm. they hand me this opinion, it's, it's almost like they, they build up a wall of this expectation that I'm going to have to fight through yeah. something. And, and, I, and I've tried my best to put that to one side and just see the person in front of me rather mm. than get this Danes are. But what was your advice? <laughs> what would be your advice to, uh, to someone coming to Denmark for the first time now? I would totally challenge everything that they just said, because I totally agree with that. It's there's this, we used to call it sort of this Viking shield wall. And it's, it's um, defy expectation is what I would do is that they it is, is, is and sort of challenge them by being warm in an authentic way, asking questions, not being afraid of Danish culture. I think in some ways, a, a country this size, which has given so much to the world, they expect Americans or Brits or whomever to come here and, and I would say not so much look down on them. It's not about that, but think, you know, you're from a much larger and more powerful country. And I think some, sometimes Danes will look at it that way. But it does. I never felt that way. My my goal was always I would I'm never going to be the most powerful American in the country. I mean, I am already. I, I am in my title. But that doesn't matter. I mean, the fact of the matter is we're just two human beings having a conversation. And that's always how I tried to connect with an individual Dane or even a larger Danish audience, regardless of my title. I, I always wanted to strip it down somehow and connect as, as a human being, not as kind of that. And I think somehow if you're a Brit or an American coming here. They're almost sort of humbled or some somehow, it, especially in my former job. And I and I didn't and I never felt that was that served the relationship that I was trying to build. And I really wanted to break down those walls in every way. No, I attended years back when you were ambassador, I believe it was a fourth of July party yeah. in the garden there. Yeah. And I remember that the Danish national anthem was also played at this event, and then the American national anthem, and I thought Wow, that's symbolic of really this two-way of celebrating an American tradition mm -hmm. with the Danish twist. Yeah. And I think you did an excellent job of kind of threading that needle of integrating different elements instead of segregating or just trying to assimilate one element. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I really, I, and I, as someone who absolutely loves, our, loves the country I come from, I, I, I don't, I've always sort of, one of the things I've loved about being American is this idea that we can all, we're always striving to improve, that it, we always, famously, our founding fathers would say, in order to form a more perfect union, meaning we're always striving per for perfection, which we will never achieve, right? So as far as I'm concerned, as a government employee, part of that is about trying to learn from other cultures. And here you have this kind of magical little country of 5.7 million people that has brought so much to the world. And whether that is, you know, huge, wonderful businesses like uh, like Lego and Vestas and so many others, or whether it's issues of equality, you know, the first country in the world to recognize same-sex unions, um, or uh, or really investing after the oil crisis in the 70s, real, 70s really investing in renewable energy in, in, a, in a world-leading way, I want to say to them, this is not, you are not a small, the, the, this concept where you open, you start every sentence of, oh, but we're just a small country. 
That's the stop it. Like, don't ever say that again. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. You are a small country if you say you are a small country. But in my mind, you are anything but small. It's it's a, understand that your contributions to the world are substantial. That's not, not determined by the amount of people. Yes, yes. And I love it. And I and so that's the, I guess that was the perspective that I tried to always bring to the job. And And it's. Telling Danes, you know, stop apologizing for being small. I, somehow, it's not about that. It's it's so much bigger than that to me. And I, I, and, and I guess that was the that was that's something that I, I learned over time. But it was a great, you know, and not. And I also should say it this way: I never looked at Denmark as a perfect country in any way. I mean, flaws, but thank God. I mean, perfection is so boring. Um, so the, those kinds of flaws were also interesting to see too. How do you take? Uh, how, how do you? Uh, how do you deal with that? I'm curious your yeah. opinion from a national branding perspective. We hear now that Denmark is the happiest country on earth. Oh yeah. Do you think that's productive or counterproductive? <laughs> Uh, being both in Denmark and abroad, I, you know, it's a great brand. Back to so, it's <laughs> one of the things you'll be uh, you in the United States. When I'd say I was U.S. ambassador to Denmark to people, they would say, "Well, I don't know anything about Denmark except for the fact that I guess they're the happiest country in the world," and that's great, right? People love that. I don't know. I mean, I think it's 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 sort of silly. I also think it has to do with the way you ask the question, because to an American, happiness is sort of over the like l- laughter and all boisterousness. <laughs> What's that? We're all millionaires. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And, you know, it, it's I think I think the way I would describe Denmark is contentedness, which is a very different yeah. world and yeah. word in English. Right. You are satisfied with your life. Yeah. Right. You are. You believe that things are good. Yeah. You know, your kids have a good education. Your healthcare system is fine. Yeah. You, the streets are plowed or whatever. You know, there are no potholes in the streets. The trains run. The and I think Americans are so not content, and this is meaning it's like no one's ever satisfied with their life. Mm. You always want the bigger house, the bigger car, the better job. And and so I think it's more connected to that than happiness, which is in English at least the word happiness in English. Really um, interesting. I think I think I share your view there yeah. of the, the contentedness, and I think that a lot of that comes down to two expectations. Yeah. That Americans may have higher expectations of what's what's possible for them, but can, right. I'd like. The, It'd be interesting your opinion of what what is the downside of contentedness from a Danish point of view? Well, I think you do have this, I guess, and this is something that's very American. I mean, there's a, a benefit to American society for never being satisfied with your life. It's always trying, it's always striving for something a little bit better. And if you do that within a you do this as a decent human being. That means hard work, innovation, entrepreneurship, building something, creating something that's bigger and better than the world has ever seen. And to as an American, and this is something I was always very proud of as ambassador, I mean, that's created everything from General Motors to Disney to Facebook, right? I mean, that's just true. And I think contentedness doesn't necessarily push you in the same way that kind of that that American spirit of entrepreneurship or anything exceptionalism anything is possible kind of concept so I think contentedness can be a a bit of a double-edged sword but you know what I'll I'll take contentedness over misery any day of the week (laughs) Um, I'm right there with you yeah (laughs) But you mentioned you mentioned um, exceptionalism, and this is a. I'm a left leaning American, and um, I used to really, uh, I used to cringe at this concept of American exceptionalism, mm. and it's just uh, especially in my sort of younger days. And I, it, the, the truth of the matter is, I think if you, I, I, I now after having been ambassador, I actually, 
I embrace it to a certain extent because it's not, again, it's not, it, as long as you present it in the right way, it's not that we're better than anyone else. It's that, that our global perspective is something that is world leading. And I believe that we're actually taking a step back from that right now. Not that we haven't made mistakes and we've made many, many, many of them, but I, I, I've actually come to embrace the term as long as it's treated as a way with which we can continue to build partnerships. Yeah. I, I think that's a good place to pivot because yeah. I recently heard a, a quote from President Macron, mm -hmm. who, uh, speaking at the anniversary of the end of World War I, said that patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism. Mm -hmm. Nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism. By saying our interests first, who cares about the others, we erase what a nation holds dearest, what gives it life, what makes it great, what makes it essential, its moral values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I can hear is that being a patriot and being nationalistic are not necessarily the same. Could not agree more. And I mean that in, in the, of course, the subtext of that quote that you just read was a repudiation of what Trump had said just a few days earlier, which is, I am a nationalist. And, and, and I think nationalism is more than that. Nationalism and, and taking away all the sort of scary nationalist movements that have plagued the world, uh, certainly some not too far from here where we are, there's a, I, I think there is a sense of selfishness associated with na nationalism that is not consistent with leadership. And I think that, um, so I mean, the, the question I would ask historically to Americans, to Donald Trump, was the Marshall Plan patriotic? Was that patriotic? And the, patri the Marshall Plan was not nationalist. This was about spending millions and millions of dollars helping build war, rebuild war torn Europe after the war. There, we didn't have a ROI. We didn't. Have, what was our return on investment for that? But just like as far as money is concerned, nothing. Well, what did we get for it? Seventy-five years of the best alliance the modern world has ever seen. That was the ROI. But that is not. That was not nationalist. And even this is. Look, and this is not partisan. Is the thing. I mean, Ronald Reagan. People like Ronald Reagan were the opposite of nationalists. They were globalists. And and whether or not you, you I. I personally struggled dramatically with Reagan's domestic policies and, and most Republican policies of a special pre-Trump. But there was this sense that we have to we have to play a role in the world. And this kind of retreating to within our to inside our borders is is going back to a chapter of an American history of, of American history with which a, that's just not uh, it's just it's not one necessarily to be particularly proud of as far as I'm concerned. And so I, I, I struggle with it very, very much. The midterm elections just happened yeah. in the United States, and you were obviously heavily involved in that process. Yes. What, what are your key takeaways there in terms of the pulse of the nation right now and yeah. going forward to 2020 for our audience, maybe give some insights yeah. on the ground? So I'm, I'm actually, I feel, I, I feel, I felt good about the midterm elections on election night. I feel very, very good about them now. And it's this, it, the reason I say that is because I really do think this is a correction, a pendulum swinging back in the way that the American system is supposed to work, it, where the American system is built on this concept of gridlock and divided government. And that's when we are most effective, as far as I'm concerned. Democrats, just the sheer numbers, Democrats had the largest victory in the history of the midterm elections. And so it's Roughly 9 million more people voted for Democrats than did for Republicans, which is 
a very, very large spread um, at a time when the more people voted in this midterm election than ever before in the history of midterm elections. So I think we picked up 40 seats in the House of Representatives, took that took that House of uh, House of Congress back, flipped seven governor's mansions, picked up it was something like 370 local legislative seat, seats in states around the country. All that stuff really matters. And I think you look at the what and first of all, the base turned out. So you just had really large turnout, which is a great thing. And then you look at where Republicans really lost. And that is what is critically important going forward. You have uh, losing the suburbs, the you know, historically in the United States. And it's not different than any other country. Cities are cities are Democratic. Rural areas are Republican and the suburbs become this historically swing area. And the suburbs just went dramatically to Democrats in a way that uh, that we hadn't seen in quite some time. And then you look at sort of say why Donald Trump was elected president. And it was really comes down to three states that he talks about all the time, Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, all of whom went for Trump in 16, all, all now have Democratic governors, all three. All three of them elected Democratic senators this year, and all three of them gained congressional seats that are for Democrats. And so there was a pendulum swing back in a more moderate direction, and I think a rejection of Trump. I mean, look at the way, look at the way he politicized the caravan from Central Central America in the days leading up to the election, and really trying to play on Americans' most xenophobic and anti-immigrant fears. And he, sure, he he probably rallied his base a bit, but you know what? The suburbs turned on him. They actually, as far as I'm concerned, saw that rhetoric and said, you know what? That is un-American, and it was un-American as far as I'm concerned. So I feel very good. I mean, cautiously optimistic. Anyone who says Donald Trump cannot win re-election is crazy. He absolutely can win re-election, and he has to be considered the favorite right now. And that's why I think that, that we did a good job in this election, but we need to continue this momentum and really try to remember and find the soul of the party yeah. once again as well. I have family in Pennsylvania. Yeah. That's where I'm from. If you were going to speak to a Pennsylvania audience yeah. or in the swing states. What would you say to someone that maybe voted for Trump last election to consider going forward here in the next cycle? Yeah, honestly, the very first thing I would say is nothing. And and this is back to the back to the point sort of I tried to make even in coming to Denmark is actually listen to them. And and I think this is something Democrats have not done, not done effectively at all. You, and depending on a court of sort of where you are in the states, because of course an audience in Philadelphia or even the Philly suburbs would be very different than they would in the more working class parts of the state, more blue collar parts of the state. But say if you are, if you lived and worked in a steel, an old steel mill town or an old coal mining town in the western part of the state, the first thing you got to do is get a sense of what's actually going on there. What's what has I mean? Look, and I'm a big I'm a big believer in a fair and free trade. I'm a big believer in sort of the global community coming together. But we also have to understand that because of some of those policies, we have left behind some of these communities domestically. And I think we have to acknowledge that. I think we have to go into these communities and listen and understand that even and tell them straight to their faces that even though these coal mining jobs may never be coming back, I am going to be a voracious fighter for you that I'm going to do everything I possibly can to bring prosperity back to this region. We may need to transition. Coal is the way of the past, not the future. And we got to figure out how how these communities can help build the future again, just like you did right. uh, a generation to pain, ago. Speaking to that underlying pain yeah. of that feeling of being left out in the workforce, yeah. having a positive message is crucial. Yeah. What I'm also hearing yeah. is that when I, talk, when I talk to people who support Trump, yeah. a, a lot of them have become consequentialists in a way 
Yeah. Where now it's not about the lack of moral values, but it's about the consequence that, okay, we've gotten these Supreme Court justices on right. board. Or, and the, the moral principles guiding have become almost secondary, yeah. which is really uh, striking to see how that's changed over the last decade. Well, it's so fascinating. I, this, I couldn't agree. I mean, it, it's so out, it, it, ridiculously ironic that someone who's been three times divorced, had numerous reported affairs, had to pay off a porn star weeks before the presidential election, still has, what, 80% of the evangelical Christian vote in the country. <laughs> I, I just, it's just, it doesn't make any sense, but it goes to your exact yeah. point. And that, it does make you cynical about politics, though, doesn't it? That, that where's the moral core here? And not, let's be clear, Democrats are guilty of this stuff as well. It's, it's, this is not a partisan thing. I, I think but the other thing is you have to realize, look, there are some people you could talk to all day long and you're never going to move them. And so the question is, you have to always, and one of the things I've learned over the course of my political career is talk to the people who are willing to listen. And if you're not willing to listen, don't waste your time. Uh, not that, hey, look, great if you try, but that's, that's uh, it's usually a fool's errand to do that. Rufus, I want to yeah. pivot a little sure. again. There is a startup scene, a fantastic startup scene here in, here in Denmark. Yeah. And uh, what I'm hearing a lot of at the moment is fundraising. And I think uh, most people will know from uh, from your history that, that you're responsible for raising the largest amount of money in history of American politics. Could you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> well, I always say, look, I take so little credit for it because, you know, when you have a product to sell like Barack Obama, meaning not to sell, but, you know, that's who you're sure. raising money for. It's really easy. And I, I always say my say to myself, I don't consider myself a particularly good fundraiser, but I was, I, I can, if I'm excited about something, then I can do it. And so I think, you know, fundraising is one of those things when I first, my first job in politics, so I, I, I was... Uh, sort of a dis, disenchanted 28-year-old, 29-year-old, and um, needed to make a change in my life and career. And I quit my job and walked into John Kerry's presidential campaign office in 2004. And I said, you know, put me to work as an unpaid volunteer. And they said, well, this is Los Angeles. Last I knew, California is not a swing state. So what we do is raise money. <laughs> And I had never asked anybody for money before. That was kind of terrifying. I'm a, I'm a New England wasp, if you know what that means. I'm yeah. like a, I, I'm very, I'm sort of like, it's kind of Danish. It's, it's sort of, it's sure. sort of governed by the same principles of Yantala. It's like you don't do that. But you have to just, you, you, you just sort of have to get over it. And then, and I, I, and there's no easier way to say it than that. You have to understand that asking people for money is not offensive. It's, uh, and you're nine times out of 10, you're asking people for money who, that's sort of that's what they do, meaning they're in it to support good candidates. From from my standpoint, they were Democrats who were interested in electing a Democrat, and the way they could have an impact is to give a couple thousand dollars in in order to help elect them, uh, elect them. And I think it, it's it's actually it became. I started to see it as kind of a way to, and this is this is going to sound a little bit ridiculous, but I saw it as a way to actually. Uh, clean up politics to a certain extent. Because if you could create a grassroots movement of funders, meaning people giving less amounts of money, but more people doing it, that was a way to clean up yeah. money in politics yeah. because there was this sense that you're not taking seven... So on the Obama campaign, for example, we didn't take a single dime of corporate money, lobbyist money, of political action committee money, um, what we did have was, I think it was 4 million donors or something like that. A lot of them were giving re recurring, but the average contribution was like $50 or wow. something like that. So that's not sort of corrupting. And did that have a tangible then effect once he came into office in I terms think so. of who he had? 
I think so. I mean, look, you know, it's it's a lot just cleaning up Washington and the fact and this is true in every capital around the world. So don't, this is not unique to D.C. Lobbyism is just there uh, everywhere you go. And so it's but I do think there's also this concept of perception being reality that if you're constantly at fundraisers hanging out with lobbyists, there's a sense that this is really not necessarily about public service. And that was challenging for Hillary very, very much on the election. But go, getting back to your question about entrepreneur, because I've, um, I've seen the entrepreneur scene here firsthand. I always was fired up and inspired, about, inspired by it. In fact, I spoke to a group called Creative Business Cup. Um, which is an international uh, group, but um, they they meet here annually in Denmark. And I've always been fired up by the entrepreneur scene here. I do think Danes, not just in fundraising, but just basically in sales, get get out of their own way. I Yantala is such an incredibly, and I'm not a Yantala critic actually. Can I you think tell the you, the listeners at home what, what Yantala is if they well, don't. I, and yes, Yantala is is it's Denmark to me. So it's it's about essentially saying that you never should believe you are any better than anybody else. And it's, it's, but now it's connected very much to not bragging. It's connected very much to a concept of a flat society so that a CEO of a company is sure, obviously is higher in rank at the company. Everybody knows that, but as a human being, they are equal to the, to the janitorial staff, right? So, and they can, there's no, uh, those people should be having conversations in, in the elevator kind of thing. And th this is just a silly example, but it's kind of, it's, so what it is, it's the opposite of Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is the, I, I always say this to Danes, if, if Americans had a bit more Yantala, we would never have elected Donald Trump president of the United States because a Dane would never put their last name on the side of an airplane or on stakes or on a university. That is the yeah. definition of being braggadocious, right? So Yantala is the opposite of that. It's being humble. I think personal humility is a wonderful trait, and it's actually what I was raised with. I think, but where I think it does not serve Danes is in the professional world. And I think Yantala actually extends to the professional world. And the thing they've produced. So yes. They can't say this, this is This is the best. Or yeah. so like this is so and, and I and you would hear stories say of something like Noma when Noma first came on and it was rated sort of the best. It was they were trying to promote it. The the creators, you know, Klaus Meyer and Rene Redzepi were talking about this, you know, we think we have something amazing here. And apparently and this was before my time that essentially the Danish old school culture tried to kind of beat them down. What makes you think you're any better than our local, you know, local place right down the street? Right. That's that's Danish, too. And you're no better than them. And I think that's where you really that you struggle there because Noma, of course, is something special. It's been revolu It's been revolutionary around the world. And I think the Danes need to learn to celebrate that in a way that is kind of is pride inducing. And I think that's, that's where, that's where I think they miss out and it makes it hard to sell. I think it makes it really hard to yeah. sell here. I, I, I always joke about this cause I've, <laughs> I've, I've been asked to edit the sort of CVs of Danes over the course of my time here. You know, a friend of mine would say, can you look at my son's CV or, or just mine? Give, okay. Tell me what you think. And I always thought it was, they were hilarious because they're the exact opposite of an American CV. Because what we're taught is just <laughs> highlight all the good stuff and make you sound way better than you are, right? Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, this is what I did for yeah. two years. And even though it was an abysmal failure, I'm not going to put that on the CV. I'm going to say that it was a, it was a great, no one's, you know, whatever. So, but Danes are outrageously honest about that stuff. So I, it's, it's, there would be like, 
you know, for two years, I started a business. I couldn't raise any money, so I just closed it down, and then I lived with my parents. Kind of thing. It's like, don't put that there. That make, yeah, exactly. That's not how you sell yourself. Yeah, that's I, a, I enjoy cycling, and here's a picture of my dog. Yeah. Totally. And it's just like and, – and I mean there's something very sort of charming about that. But it's not – it's kind of the opposite of what you're taught in the United States about how to sell yourself professionally. Not, not personally, but professionally. And I, I just uh, – I, I always got a kick out of it, but I do think it some ways hinders some of that real innovative and creative and entrepreneurial spirit that I think is that is absolutely 100% real here in Denmark. Yeah, I mean, um, something that I noticed when I got here was kind of like that was the message I was being told. You know, I was, I was handed a guidebook 10 years ago, and one of the main points in it was the further up a tree a monkey climbs, the more you can see his ass. And yeah, then it yeah. translated into <laughs> Danish. And I just thought that is so typically Danish, but yeah. What I'm seeing at the moment is is a lot of sort of social media stardom emerging in this country as well. Yeah. And, and it being people's network and how many people they know in Denmark that helps them create their business opportunities. Yeah. And, and it seems to fly in the face of that. The building of a network while also not self-promoting seems to be a, a difficult Task. Yeah, I absolutely. I think it does get back to this concept. I mean, Danes will be inherently uncomfortable with this concept. So I just by birth. And so I, I do think it's a matter of and I think so I do think it and it will be fine. I, I think you do have to again get back to the sort of getting out of your own way and being comfortable with it and realizing that if you have a product that is or a business or something that is you believe in, just talk about it. Just talk about it in that way. And I think that desire is infectious in, in, in many ways, yeah. But it is interesting. I can tell you that Yantelaw is, I was often, in my job here, was, was warned by Danes about Yantelaw because I had a TV show, which Danes were initially like, oh my God, this is, you're going to be, you're going to be uh, sort of Danes at the embassy and maybe some friends of mine be like, you have got to be careful because the moment this is true all over the world, but even more so in Denmark, the moment you're out there like that is the moment that they will try to start to tear you down because it's the sense that what who does he think he is for having a TV show? And so and I actually understood that because I think there's nothing more ridiculous than having my I, there's nothing more ridiculous than me having my own TV show. I completely agree with that. But that's actually that's how I would lead. And so I and because it's what I believe it's that. You can still be hum you can still be humble about your successes. It, you can still be humble about what you've done if your heart is in the right place. And I think that's kind of what the advice I would give to a Danish entrepreneur is that look, I I was if I had a business that was trying to some sort of impact company that was trying to solve an energy crisis, and I, I this is something I saw as a as a as a real problem in society, and I've wanted to do everything I possibly can to fix it. And I, and I, you know, I've worked long and hard to figure this out. I think there's, you can still be, you can still be an entrepreneur and an innovator and a fundraiser and all those things while still maintaining a, a sense of humility and self. And, and that's how I think I would advise Danes to, to pursue it. There's nothing more annoying, I think, than a really aggressive pitching person to constantly no. walking into every room who needs to talk to you about their product. That's very American. So it's, it's make something that you cannot not talk about and then talk about that, not I made this, yeah. but this is this and this is great. I think yeah. that's right. I do. And I, 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 th I think that's – yeah, I, absolutely. I, I don't think you should ever if – you, if, you if you are creating something that is – that you believe is going to change the world or, you know – even a tiny little 
miniature piece of the world. Love that. Yeah. I mean, I just I think that's it's your magic. best shot, right? To yeah. tell people about it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I think it's uh, I, th I think own it without a doubt. Yeah, Rufus, we're very mindful of your time, and we want to finish out the podcast with some quick fire questions. Great. But first, we're going to take a quick break and come right back. Hello and welcome back. I'm here with Thomas Mulhern and Rufus Gifford. Rufus, we have some quick fire questions for you now. The questions are quick fire. Your answers certainly don't have to be. But I'm going to kick off here with what habits, routines and rituals do you perhaps have to help you maintain your energy through the day? Yeah, it's, um, so I, I am an avid exerciser. So that would either be running or uh, weightlifting. That is, I do it as a way to make, yes, of course, you want to be healthy and look good and all that, but it's, it's, it becomes mostly mental for me. And I try to do it every day, but traveling doesn't always lend itself to that. Uh, and then I always try to have my time, which is usually that means lying, uh, literally just shutting out the rest of the world. I'm not a particularly good meditator. So oftentimes it's uh, me with uh, 45 minutes on my iPad reading headlines, reading uh, or either checking emails or uh, just uh, where, I, where I sort of ignore the rest of the world. And that's most of what I do. And, you know, when I have more time, certainly any time I can be by the ocean, any time I can be by the ocean, I absolutely love it. So it uh, clears my head in every way. Likewise. Yeah. You're clearly a, an emotionally intelligent person. But I just wanted to know, is there any um, personality trait that you wrestle with in terms of self-regulation that you have to constantly, you know, get yourself in check? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, well, there's a few things. First of all, I, I am a – I don't know that I'm a perfectionist, but I and, – and that's probably the answer. Every, but it's I, – I'm never satisfied with any, anything I do. So – and that's something that I'm very – that keeps me up at night and, and – prevents sort of a sense of satisfaction within myself, whether that is a speech I just gave or an interview I just did or even a personal interaction, which I wish I had said something in a different way. And, and, and I think about it and I dwell on it. I think right now I really struggle with being a 44-year-old retired ambassador. This is um, – and I, I actually think of – and I, what, where I'm trying to get to in my head is seeing that as a really amazing thing. But I think – the hard part is when you've had such this kind of phenomenal experience when you've been so young, where do you go from here and what do you do next? So there's this, I guess, maybe very American sense of, oh, my God, how do you top this, right? How do you get better? How do you, how, what's the next thing that I can do? Because it can't be, I can't, the best years of my life can't be when I'm, you know, from 40 to 42, right? And so that's, and what, I think that is a personality trait in me. And going back to what we said, it meant to be American. I think that that's very, very American concept too. But I also don't fight it. I actually think it's good. It, and it will push me to continue to try to fight for something, not sort of more powerful where I make more money, not about that, but something, doing something that will have impact. And yeah. um, so, but that is something I struggle yeah. with every so day. So it's that internal double-edged sword we talked about in terms of the macro level. With yes. The, the Danish American. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've been able to, to a degree, use that as your as your fuel as well as use it as your uh, demon. <laughs> yeah, very much. I mean, I always say that. So I've been so privileged to have had some successes in my life, but I've always, I've also had a lot of failures. And I've got to say, I've always, always learned 
a lot more from my failures uh, than I ever have from my successes. It's from the failures that I've had in my life where I have pushed myself even harder and further and have created something uh, special uh, as a result. And, and that's what I hope after the failure of my congressional campaign just now, my struggle is to see sort of is, is to figure out how to use this entire experience as a way to um, take a next step, a next step that is exciting and bold and, and impact producing. So. And could you talk about a, a favorite failure of yours that has led onto progress? Yeah, sure. When I was in my, this is, it's the biggest one. When I was in my late 20s, I was working in the entertainment industry and I, I was very frustrated. I was uninspired by the business, the, the, by the business generally. I didn't want to do it anymore. And so I decided to make a change in my life. And to me, that meant applying to business school. Uh, as many Americans do, go, let's go get an MBA in my late 20s and try to figure out how to change course. And um, I didn't get in. So I found myself, and I had really put all my eggs in that basket, and I had really planned for that was what I was going to do. I said, you know what, this was a sign, sort of not a sign, I'm not, I'm not really about that, but that, this just means that I've got to work harder to try to, find a, try to find something that makes me happy in the world. And it was that failure that led me to quit my job in the entertainment industry and walk into John Kerry's presidential campaign office. And that led me to pursue a life in politics and public service. And that changed my life in every way. And I, what, what happens is that was where I, I often say, I, it's where I learned how to balance my head and my heart. And not only was I good at something for the first time, I really felt like I was good at something for the first time in my life, but I was also inspired. I wanted to get out of bed in the morning. It didn't matter how much money I made. It didn't matter anything else. It just mattered that I felt like I was doing something impactful. So that was that's probably the biggest one. Rufus, do you have a mentor or a teacher that has most influenced your life? Yeah, I, I mean, you can't. I can't get away from my mom and dad on this one. They're my best friends in the world. My mom in keeping me grounded in every way and teaching me a sense of kindness and decency and respect for others that is just beautiful and something I try to carry with me everywhere I go combined with my dad who's sort of a very competitive very successful businessman who never settles for that doesn't take no for an answer doesn't doesn't always believes that you can get better kind of thing. That combination is, I think what I, and I both have their own flaws, to be honest with you. And I love them both. Don't get me wrong. But try, what I try to do is take in myself, try to take the, the beauty of both of those character traits and, um, and use them uh, as a way to make myself a better human being in every way. And so I, they are. And then I, of course, I mean, look, do I love and respect people like, you know, the Obamas are my sort of, professional mm-hmm. mentors in every way both of them for the how, same how, how did you how did you meet barack and Michelle? yeah um the barack i met i was the the true story is this i i um in the 2007 i the january of 2007 right after the new year i was offered a job by hillary's campaign to do her campaign in 2008 oh, wow. and um in fundraising yep to run california which is a huge job and that very same day, I went to a reception at Teddy Kennedy's Senate office in, uh, in Washington. And Barack Obama walked into the room, and he was escorting Ethel Kennedy, who's Bobby Kennedy's widow. And it's, you know, I'm a Kennedy freak. I'm from Massachusetts. And, <laughs> it's, and I go over to him, and, and it's, 
and introduce myself. And he's a young senator. He hasn't announced his intention to run for president yet, but it is sort of very seriously being talked about. And I go over to him and I felt like I have an hour and a half conversation with him. It was probably 30 seconds. But it's, um, and in the moment, I said, this is the guy I want to work for. There was something about him that I loved his politics, but, you know, that's actually the easy part. I loved Hillary's politics were great, too. Uh, all the other Democrats were great politics. But, you know, there was something about him that was special. Not only is his ability to connect with people and communicate, but he was, I wanted to prove to the world that we could do this. I wanted to, I wanted to prove the world that considering our history with race, that we could elect an African-American president with the middle name Hussein, that the United States of America could do that. And, and I just wanted, I wanted that. Uh, I wanted as, as the American dream so often, which is what drives us as people, seems so far out of reach. I wanted to prove to the world again that the walking embodiment of the American dream, meaning Barack Obama, could be elected president of the United States still. And and I and I just think that we needed that, especially at the time at that time in history, where I think it was second term Bush, people were very negative on the government and he was an, a transformational and inspirational leader. So that's how I met him and that's how I decided to work for him. This next question will feel like a Big juxtaposition from that one. But yeah. um, what's something weird about about you? Oh, boy. Lots of weird stuff. <laughs> I, love, um, I love computer games. Is that weird? Maybe not weird anymore, but maybe for a 44-year-old. I, uh, my husband will often... I mean, you don't meet the, the typical prototype of a computer no, game no, player. No, no, no. It's a true... I'll tell you this story because it was actually hilarious. I was on Air Force One sometime during the second term. It was during the re-election campaign, so probably sometime in 2012. And Air Force One, you may... It, at least then, does not have Wi-Fi. And I was okay. in this area of Air Force One that's really beautiful, but it's it's. I was the only one there for whatever reason. It's kind of divided up into little sections, and it was a short flight, I think, from San Francisco to Seattle or something. And I was playing uh, Plants vs. Zombies on my iPad, which is a which is a game. And I was just sitting there, and then I finally I got a tap on my shoulder, and it was Obama. It was President Obama. And I was like, working hard there, so I see Rufus. And I, like, quickly tried to get it off the screen as, as quickly as humanly possible. But I couldn't do any work. I don't have any Wi-Fi. What do you expect me to do? You should be contemplating policy. Yes. I could have contemplated policy, I suppose. But I was a political fundraiser. What was I, I didn't have any policy to contemplate. Have you got any money? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I also, look, I, I, um, I love, I, I will say this, I love McDonald's. <laughs> and I don't go very often anymore. But as a, I, as, as a child, I would, the highlight of my, this sounds absolutely depressing, but the highlight of my week would always be begging my dad, who worked very hard, but I, he worked very hard, but on the weekends it was it was us time, and he would take me to McDonald's to get uh, a couple of cheeseburgers and a french fry and then go walk on the beach. And uh, so that was those were my happy days. I, I'm McDonald's. right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> sounds American. There's something, yeah. there's, something, there's something you can't take out of America. I don't know. I know. It's just it's terrible. And those childhood memories, you, they last for your whole life. <laughs> what do you think... Denmark can teach the United States and the rest of the world, and conversely, what yeah. the United States and the rest of the world can still teach Denmark. Sure. So as it relates, I'll talk just about the U.S. and what Denmark can t teach the U.S. So there's the policy stuff, which is the easy part, sort of, right? So a real investment in renewable energy in a way that's meaningful, and, and in a way that convincing the United States that this is not a political debate, that this is about creating an economy that's actually forward-looking and modern. This is about 
uh, looking at renewable energy in a way that's not only a, not only a way to save the planet, but an economic driver and a job creator. And this is this is actually values driven to a certain extent, but it's also connected to good governing. And, and I think Denmark's been very using that as an example, but very, very good at that. But I think there's something broader, and, and this is something because I think we're going to hear a lot more about kind of this concept of Scandinavian social democracy in the United States politically in the not too distant future. But ultimately, it does come down to this idea of trust and community. I, I think that Denmark has a very special relationship internally, and it is connected to this concept of trust. And and as I've seen trust break down uh, in the United States in recent years, I think that we fundamentally have to build that trust back. And and we can't create the kinds of things that people in the United States want to create, whether that's universal health care, uh, free education, whatever it may be, a really big infrastructure spending bill, if we don't have revenue. That means higher taxes. And Danes are willing to pay higher taxes because they trust the government to spend it. And they'll complain about it, of course, but you can't do this stuff without revenue. And Americans just fundamentally don't trust it. So I, I, I would like for that to happen. And and look, I'm, um, I love the idea of the concept of, of Huga. And Huga is a big thing in the United States right now. I, and it's defined as coziness, but I actually don't define it as that. I, I, I think Huga is this... Danish or Scandinavian desire to create a series of perfect moments over the course of any given day. It's Huga's not necessarily about coziness. Sure, it could be around a fire, but it could also be a, a street festival drinking beer in the summer with your friends on a perfect summer, sunny day. That's, you know, that's, that's Hugli as well. Your, your Kodak moments. Yeah, exactly. It's this concept where you're actually connecting with human beings, right? It's, it's, it's that. And so what I believe that is about, which Americans do not have, is this idea of living in a moment, appreciating the moment, not looking, not constantly searching for something better. And even though, like we talked about before, I don't think Americans should lose that. I think it's we've created a lot of wonderful things because of it. But being able to appreciate what we have is something and trying to, you know, light a candle or, or two and grab a blanket and go sit outside. I love that stuff. And and we, it strikes me when I see it because we would never do it. We just, you know, go inside or, you know, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I know. And I, I just think it's, I think it's, I think it's lovely. And I think we could learn. From yeah. It. Get better at being here, but keep striving for that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Rufus, I want to be really mindful of your time. Sure. So we're just going to go to one last question yeah. and, and then we'll ask you where people can find out more about you yeah. or follow you on social media, perhaps. Uh, what book or books have you most gifted or been most influenced by? Oh boy! Um, so most so let's we're working backwards. I so during the time I, I tend to read most when I'm on vacation. So uh, and I, and when I left my ambassadorship, I went on a two two three week. Stephen and I went on a two or three week vacation to Australia and New Zealand. And uh, let's see, I read I read in the Garden of Beasts. If you know what that is, it's about the it's actually about the American ambassador to Germany during the time of the rise of Nazism. It's um, based on letters that he and his daughter wrote. And I just as you sort of see the rise of fascism coming out of a somewhat relatively well-functioning democracy, it's uh, it was just a fascinating read at, at this point in history. Uh, what else? I've I've read, um, and then following that, I read the biography of John Adams, who's uh, one of the founding fathers of the United States and a proud person from Massachusetts, 
which I loved, loved, loved. Um, and then I'm trying to think back as a child. I, I was profoundly moved constantly by any, when I was a young kid, I couldn't get enough of Roll Doll. So uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, is all, as soon as I could, I'd read them, re- read them over and over and over and over again. And then as I got into sort of more of my uh, difficult adolescence, I, I, I couldn't get enough of, you know, American iconic books like uh, Catcher in the Rye. And then I became a then I became a lover of plays, and uh, I'm giving way too many answers. <laughs> uh, but I love I love like Tennessee Williams plays and the kind of brutal passion of these relationships yeah. and, and kind of the sexiness of them all. And then trying to understand because I, I love drama because I was obsessed with personal interaction, and and plays are so much about connection like that. And so I, I started to love those, and there have been many more. But uh, I always have literally my the stack of books I'm supposed to read is sky high i always think the the first memory of the first book you ever read has fingerprints in it of the life that that you go on to have and and the values that that you hold and you know was it superhero or you know to hear you say of roald dahl you know it's such a mirror there of everything that we've talked about yeah so true so true yeah it's uh, absolutely absolutely well rufus it's been a uh, a true pleasure having you here in the the studio but before we go we know there's a a new book that just came out about you and being yeah. in the United States in the time of Trump. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you want to say a little bit about sure. that and where yeah. our uh, followers can find it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there is a new uh, book published in Danish. It's called Rufus Gifford in Trump's America, written by two Danish journalists who followed followed my campaign. And essentially what my, what motivated me to come home and step up my service. I, you know, I, I, I had never intended running for office. And so it follows that journey. And um, so that's what I've been talking a, a good bit about. And it's covering, I think, actually a lot of the topics we, we, we talked about today. And I, you can buy it anywhere in, uh, anywhere, in, uh, anywhere in Denmark here. Any good bookshop. <laughs> Any good, I think so, at and least, yeah. Can we expect an English translation? I hope for so. Our, for we'll our see, friends I, that the, kind of haven't mastered of, the Danish It's, it's actually out of my hands, considering I'm not the author. So it, <laughs> I, would, um, I would hope that at some point there will be an English translation well, somewhere, somehow. But uh, I'll, I'll do my best to do it for you. It'll, it should be ready in about five to ten years. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it's not, it's not going to stay faithful to the text at no. <laughs> oh, it's very, that's just fine. But thanks again so Thank much. You. And we hope next time you're in Copenhagen, we can pick up the dialogue. Sounds, sounds great, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you so yeah, much for having so me. Best of, luck with, uh, best of luck with the podcast. I thank you very much. Following it, following it and hearing how it goes. So that's all for today. Don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you can get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please, a rating and review to help us promote our podcast, where we try to open Denmark up to the world and the world up to Denmark. See you next week on the GDP.